1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kimberly Mack, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kyle Barnett about his book, Record Cultures, The Transformation of the U.S. Recording Industry. Kyle Barnett, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you for having me.
1: Kyle, I wonder if you would begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, so I'm a, uh, I'm an associate professor of media studies in the Department of Communication at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I was born in Indiana. I grew up in and around Indianapolis. My wife and I uh, moved around the country on the grad school program uh, through our 20s and 30s. I did my Undergraduate at IUPUI in Indianapolis, I did my master's at Bowling Green in American Culture Studies, and I did a PhD at the University of Texas in a Radio Television Film. So we we saw the the USA on the academic track.
1: <laughs> Can you tell us? Okay, so we're just, we're just going to start at the beginning here. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how you came to write Record Cultures?
0: Yeah, so I did not set out to write a book about the recording industry. Like when I got to uh, Texas in the PhD program in radio, TV, film, there were people there doing work in music and sound, but no one was really doing it as a dissertation. I had imagined I would do this film studies dissertation. I was thinking about film and urbanism and the rise of depictions of the rise of American urbanism on film. I was into the city symphony films and and all sorts of things, but there was this thing on the side that kept needling me, uh, this thing that would happen in media studies where in the undergraduate intro classes, they would have a chapter on sound recording and popular music but then after that the you know the the focus on sound recordings or recording industry or popular music would fall away uh, and it would seem to me to be obscured so it was this weird thing where i was in a program that was known for its study of media industries a lot of really great work Uh, came out of the RTF program in Texas. But I thought it was odd that the record business or the recording industry wasn't really included in any concentrated way. So this was not a project I was looking for, uh, but I felt like it was needed. So I think if you move, if you start thinking about sound recordings, not just as texts or practices, but part of an industrial formation, right? So thinking about uh, institutions as the, uh, you know, institutions as uh, these channels for culture, Uh, I thought it would be really worth my time to write about the recording industry at a period in which it's still a standalone thing, but it's about to go through this big transformation. And on the other end of it, it's going to be part of this, big media entertainment conglomerate already by the 1930s. So I wanted to reintegrate the recording industry with other media industries. I also wanted to historicize popular music studies. You know, most pop music research, if it goes back before the mid-1960s, that's a win. And we miss so much. So that was another thing I wanted to do uh, and so I had a couple of those are just two of my <laughs> agendas in doing this, but it, it was a project that found me more than I went looking for it.
1: You also talk a lot about genre. Genre seems to be something that's of interest to you. Uh, in your introduction, you say genre categories and their social and cultural distinctions were and are created and operationalized by recording companies to sell recorded music as commodities. As such, genres are imbued by a constellation of social, cultural, and aesthetic designations with their own set of specific values, attitudes, beliefs, and dispositions. Um, Can you just say a little bit more about genre, the importance of it, and the importance of it in this particular project?
0: Yeah, I would think anyone looking for a deep musicological dig into genres and sort of traits surrounding particular genres would be deeply disappointed (laughs) in my book, but I'm really interested in genre as a cultural formation. One that, uh, uh, genres that emerged in this somewhat provisional way uh, that was largely for practical reasons, right? So these were record companies that were looking to organize audiences, and the way in which they organize, to define and organize audiences, and the way in which they did it was to start to form these genres in this kind of cultural circuit. They're listening to what the musicians are saying, they're listening to what audiences are you know, saying and what they're responding to. Uh, this was like a, a marketing thing. This was a, a a point of sale kind of issue uh, and so there's a real practical side to it. In addition to that, there are all these kind of cultural attitudes that are imbued in each of these genres, uh, uh, attitudes about uh, class, attitudes about race, attitudes about genre, attitudes about you know geographical locations. Uh, there's a lot that's baked in to genres, and that was what I was most interested in, in looking at. And I, I really got this, I think, this insight comes from traditional film studies where, you know, the, the study of film in the United States begins by people looking at texts, and then they realize, oh, you know, texts are related to genres, and they start setting genres and they say, you know, you know, certain studios were deeply involved in certain genres, right? And, and uh, I was trying to make sure we did the same thing in popular music studies, right? So to to see how these institutions, how these cultural go-betweens, how these recording engineers and scouts were making sense of the music they were recording and the people with which they were interacting. So to me, genre is important for its, its, its practical importance to the companies, but also its kind of cultural reverberations too. So the way in which it categorizes music, but also categorizes people, in different sorts of ways and in artificial ways, I think.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, it's interesting too, because you, you started out by talking about how you were interested in the ways in which sort of U S recording companies are not included in media as media industries. And that's something that you want to kind of correct the record on. Um, So, so it seems like you're, you're interested in, in categories and kind of um seeing the ways in which these categories are both created but also um looking at the limits of these categories um so i'm just wondering how genre and the ways in which genre is created um does that that interest does that at all connect to that other initial agenda that you mentioned in the beginning about wanting to make it clearer that uh, sound recording shouldn't be kind of marginalized in media studies. Is there? Any I think so.
0: There? I, I must have a a dis- personal disposition, you know, to be thinking about uh, categorization and why this and not that. I think I even early on in graduate school, I was comparing notes with friends in other de- other departments of the programs. What are you reading, and what am I reading, and what are you not reading, and what am I not reading, and why? Um, uh, thinking about institutional cultures and and categories, right? Walking into a record shop and thinking about, you know, why is this artist in this location and not that location? Uh, and so, yeah, I think I think those those impulses are connected between seeing genres as these categorical uh, uh, structures within uh, the record business, and also thinking about the exclusion of the recording industry, at least in certain ways in, in media studies. Uh, so I think it's really interesting to think about that, that exclusion in different sorts of ways. I mean, the recording industry is its own sort of media industry and it's not just doing music. It's doing uh spoken word recordings and all the, you know, environmental recordings and all these different things. But we have an impoverished vocabulary for talking about music. And we also associate music, I think, with performance, even though most of us consume music through sound recordings. So media studies, I think, doesn't, you know, media studies understands narratives first, uh, and maybe this is tied to its emergence out of literary studies uh, in the United States. But it's also this, you know, it's, it's not, pop songs are not narrative, right, in the ways that, say, a film would be or a radio show or a television show. that tends to be more elliptical and more uh, trafficking in sort of uh, or communicating through affect. So those are harder things to write about. Uh, but, and so I think there, there are institutional reasons why Sound recordings in the recording industry get excluded, but, uh, and they're worth, I think there may be worth me writing a standalone piece on that at some point. But, uh, I think, um, Mm. yeah, I think uh, there's a general interest in categorization and what it includes and what it excludes uh, straight through my work, (laughs) I would guess.
1: Okay. So you you begin your book with a history of jeanette records, um and it's and then you also talk about its way into jazz. can you Can you tell us a little bit more about this chapter and And I'm also really interested in your approach to the research for yeah this chapter.
0: So uh, what I tried to do with each chapter was to connect a given record company, or in some cases, you know uh, a radio or it might be a series of companies. Connected to a particular genre and, uh, and then proceed in ways in which were necessary based on the kinds of archival materials I was finding. So, in the case of Jeanette records, it was quite interesting. I was able to find a lot of paper, a lot of documents. I was, I was able to find a lot of research notes from record collectors. Interviews that they had done with people that had been involved in the company Uh, and even some memos and things like that, sort of inner office kinds of things, you know, communications between, you know, A&R people, or I guess they would would have been called record men in that gendered sort of way. Uh, (laughs) They would have been called record men. They weren't called A&R scouts yet. I sometimes call them talent scouts, which I think some folks in music, it bothers them. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, so in the case of the first chapter, the Jeanette chapter, I'm trying to connect Jeanette's foray into jazz with larger discourses around jazz and sort of moral panics uh, uh, and often racialized moral panics around jazz jazz. So, but the the first chapter is maybe closest to the kind of cultural industries research you would read in the contemporary, in in contemporary studies, but I'm trying to do it historically, if that makes sense. So looking at the institutional culture and how they might be too strong to say stumbled in (laughs) to recording jazz, but... uh, How they became, you know, sort of how they started to speculate into this unrecorded music, largely unrecorded music, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so how do you how do you do some of that historical work? Um, It sounds like it has something to do with the archive. Um, Can can you say a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So uh, I learned that. uh, So Jeanette Records emerged uh, out of this uh, piano company, kind of a furniture company in Richmond, Indiana, which is along the Indiana-Ohio border. And uh, so like many of the early labels, they made phonograph cabinets. They started with the hardware, so phonograph cabinets, then uh, phonographs, and then finally sound recordings. But I, there was renewed interest in Jeanette records and its importance, so historical importance uh, there was a book by uh, a great guy named Rick Kennedy on the Jeanette Records label that came out through uh, Indiana University Press. Uh, and then I knew that in Richmond, there was an organization called the Star Jeanette Foundation. So the the parent company was Star Piano with two R's. And, uh, and so I knew I would want to visit there. At the Indiana Historical Society in Indianapolis, I also knew that there was a, a record collector's Archival materials. He had done a bunch of work toward a book he wanted to write but never finished. And so back in the 19, I think mostly 60s and 70s, I'd have to check to be sure. This researcher, this record collector, John Mackenzie, had done all this work on Jeanette. And then when his wife died, she had the forethought to send all his research materials to the Indiana Historical Society. So I spent a week in Indianapolis going through his work uh, and the sort of Jeanette archival stuff. And then I went to Richmond, Indiana to the Star Jeanette Foundation and went through what they had. So it was paperwork. It was sound recordings. Uh, In some cases, like I actually went to the site of the Star Piano Factory and the Jeanette recording studio there. Uh, They had studios. Many of these Midwestern labels also had studios in New York for a time until they felt comfortable with like actually operating it out in the Midwest, <laughs> they kind of felt like they needed to be in New York, <laughs> you know, uh, which was where Victor oh, uh-huh. and Columbia and uh, uh, Edison, they were sort of in New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, kind of around that area. So the record business just wasn't really in the Midwest yet. Right. So they all had New York offices, but the New York, Studios, and then eventually they one by one they sort of closed them down, uh, and then eventually those big East Coast labels open up shop in like Chicago and things. But and so I'm just trying to go through this archival material and get a sense of uh, what these companies were doing. I also spent a long a long time in record collector circles and uh, sort of archivist and librarian circles, people that were interested in sound recordings. Uh, and so a lot of folks that were just enthusiasts and I owe I owe a lot to record collectors, uh, but also, yeah, just archivists, sound archivists and things. And so I spent years, you know, just figuring out, uh, all these different strands of history, I guess. And in the case of, uh, my trip to Richmond, Indiana, Star Jeanette Foundation was set up in a chamber of commerce there. They just kind of was They were given a corner of the office. And there were a couple of file cabinets run by this amazing librarian and archivist, Elizabeth Searles, who she's moved on to the Institute for Jazz Studies. Uh, but uh, she um, was set up there and I would go and I they set me up in this room that had a all these portraits of the Richmond, Indiana Chamber of Commerce, Immortals, you know, sort of all around me. And a local collector and Jeanette enthusiast picked me up one day and said, I'm going to take you down to the Jeanette factory. And he took me down the star Jeanette, you know, plant, uh, the remnants of it. And we go down to the studio where Louis Armstrong and King Oliver and Big Spiderbeck and Hoagie Carmichael and Jelly Roll Morton, all these people had recorded. And he reaches down and he gives me this brick. He says, this brick, Kyle, you know, is an original brick from the Jeanette studio and I want you to have it. And he puts, puts, he puts it in this, you know, cardboard box, you know, my Jeanette studio brick. And I get back to Indianapolis to fly back to (laughs) Austin and I put my luggage up to be weighed. And the person says, Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mr. Burnett, your, your luggage is overweight. Right. And I immediately I picture the brick that's in my (laughs) luggage. Right. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Which is weird enough to have a brick in one's luggage, um, uh, but I gladly paid the extra fee, and I still have the Jeanette Studio brick in my office at Bellarmine University. So, um, so I mean, it was a lot of great detective work on the Jeanette chapter and all the chapters, really. Uh, a lot of we're going anywhere from like the Library of Congress to uh, uh, little county historical societies. I went to the Wayne County Historical Society in Richmond, Indiana, as well, um, you know, trying to track the stuff down because I was trying to think about the the spots where there might be materials that no one had visited uh, or no one had been in a while, so I wasn't trying to just think about the 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 most common locales that people. Uh, tend to go do research if that makes sense. So yeah, so the Jeanette stuff was mostly mm-hmm. Indiana Historical Society and the Star Jeanette Foundation in Richmond, and then what I gleaned from collectors and what I found from old trade magazines like Talking Machine World. Uh, so it was a lot of a lot of detective work, a lot of archival digging.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... Six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That's great. That's a great that's a great story. I was going to ask you if there was any sort of, you know, any unexpected discoveries. Uh in the archive, but,
0: um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one other, story. I mean, it was great. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, I, uh, there's all these stories. Like I went, I went up into Wisconsin and I went to the Port Washington historical society to, to look at their paramount records material. I went to the Chicago jazz archive at the university of Chicago. I went to the Ozaukee County historical society in Wisconsin. And the lady said, no, it says we're open at nine, but show up at nine 15 because I got to get my coffee. And, you know, there's this whole thing, you know? Um, but the weirdest thing that I think occurred to me was uh, an old record collector had told me that there were these Columbia and okay records materials at the New York public library at Lincoln center at the Hammerstein Rogers and Hammerstein collection there uh, at the library there. And I emailed them for weeks and I, I didn't hear back, but I was already going to be in New York City. So I thought, okay, so I will go there anyway. So I show up, um, nothing in their catalog had said that they had this material that I had heard about on Columbia and OK Records. And I'm talking to the librarian and the librarian saying, no, there's nothing in our catalog. I'm, I'm not sure uh, you might just be mistaken. And then an archivist behind me heard me and he said, Oh, yeah, we have that stuff. It's in boxes downstairs. No one's looked at it for a long time. And he put a sticker on my shirt that, you know, gave me clearance. And he took me two stories, I have two floors before below um Lincoln Center and said, you know, I could spend as long as I wanted there, but I he just wanted me to write on in marker on the outside of the cardboard box what was in each box. Um and so that was amazing. Uh, the other weird thing about that was the um, magician or illusionist. Uh, he's always dipping himself in water or hanging from great heights. I can't remember this guy's name, but he was he was on the plaza,
1: <laughs>
0: um, which gave. Uh, it was David Blaine. Yes, it, David it was Blaine? David Blaine, I don't know. which gave the whole affair okay. an even more weird and surreal. I'd sort of come out of the basement for lunch and then, <laughs> you know, it would be people, uh, you know, giving David Blaine their phone number um, while he's like in a ball of water anyway. Um, so there was a lot of really interesting kind of moments. The, the big takeaway for me as someone that hadn't done a lot of archival research is that there isn't an archive I know of of any size that knows the people that work there it. No one knows what's in there altogether because no one could possibly afford to staff an archive enough to catalog everything they have, so especially at the Library of Congress, you know those folks walking around, you realize a lot of what's in the in the facility is only really accessible. Through the minds of the archivists, right? Uh, so you really need to talk to them <laughs> and and find out what what you might be missing. And that's something I often ask: is you know what what am I missing? What, what am I not? What should I, what should I be looking at that I'm not looking at? Basically, is a question I'll often ask. So um, that was a great education, I think, and it really started with the Jeanette research, and then it just kind of went through. Uh, um, through the, through the book.
1: So, so tell us a little bit about the next chapter, chapter two, you focus on race records and the discourse that shaped race records, um, as well as the emergence of the African-American. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: so I had to, I had to adapt a slightly different approach in this chapter because I found more material from the trade journals, and in the African American press uh, newspapers like the Chicago, Chicago Defender a- as opposed to the kinds of record company materials I was finding for the first chapter so all the way through the book the trade journals and newspapers of the era are really important there was a magazine called trade or sorry a magazine called talking machine world that was hugely important to me but i was interested in the term race records, which I think most people on fir- first hearing assumed that it was always already this kind of derogatory, prejudicial sort of term. But it actually starts in the African-American press. So, so recordings to represent the best of the race, right? So it was a kind of a highly class-based um kind of urge I think, in the african american press's desire to for cultural acceptance and um uh recognition so uh so in the chicago defender they're they're talking about how African american opera stars for instance, could compete with the best of you know the, the sort of the white opera stars of the time so the, the, what what they wanted to do i think what the urge was. And this this was true with Black Swan initially, uh, and some other labels was to record high culture, right? So uh, I think there's somewhat of this urge in the Harlem Renaissance more generally, uh, at least at first. And there's a you know there's this interesting class dynamic that's going on uh, within African American culture. And so I try to map that. Uh, then you know what happens is by 1920 or so. These smaller labels that are emerging that I try to document are looking for new things to record. And uh, some of these white owned labels turn to what gets called race records. So initially, this is sort of, we would think of them, these records mostly as blues later on. First, it was largely f- female fronted small jazz groups. Uh, and then later on, uh, when the so-called country blues starts to get recorded, it's it's not exclusively, but more commonly a single male performer with a guitar. Uh, but yeah, so I was trying to map the discourse surrounding the the term uh, and how that sort of goes. Um, there's this complicated thing, right where um, some of these sound recordings really do help and this is recordings from white labels too that maybe even misunderstand or are prejudicial to the people they're recording, but it helped to open up this kind of space of cultural legitimacy. On the other hand, even the sort of proponents of the music sometimes over-mytho- over-mythologized over uh, the artists. And I think actually this maybe intersects with some of your work uh, in your book, Kimberly, but the the there's this kind of mythologizing and you especially get white scouts or artists or critics saying things like, Oh, you know, this is the voice of, you know, the Mississippi Delta, or this is the voice Mm -hmm. of, you know, and I always think about Louis Armstrong saying he loved Bing Crosby, right? Which was now a very unhip thing maybe to say, Uh, that's not really what they're looking for. Right. They're looking for like, this is the, this is the, sound of the authentic black experience kind of thing. When, as you know, right. So Robert Johnson and all these people are, do they have a pop repertoire? They're playing different kinds of music for different sorts of people and their tastes were much broader than they were given. So on the one hand, there's this great kind of opening up and this sort of cultural legitimization that legitimizing that happens. But on the other hand, there's a, there's that negative side of that legitimacy in that they become essentialized as human. They, they somehow stop being human beings and start being mm-hmm. like sort of symbols for something. Does that make sense? <laughs> so that's kind of what I'm yes. thinking. That's some of what I was thinking in that chapter. Can you anyway. say a little... uh, I'm trying to map that. Yeah.
1: I mean, can you say a little bit about,
0: mm. No, just, <laughs> uh, just saying that I was, that was some of what I was trying to map, you know, cause it is complicated uh this this interplay I think is really complicated.
1: Yeah. No, I was just gonna ask, I mean, Black Swan Records, can you say anything about that and how maybe does that come and provide any sort of yeah, I think intervention so. I mean, into so any of that? The
0: Black Swan w- wasn't it wasn't the first African American owned label. There were earlier ones, but this is maybe the first famous one that emerges and it's it comes uh from uh, it was founded by a guy named Harry Pace, who has actually had interesting ties uh, to W.C. Handy in Memphis, but also W.E.B. Du Bois in uh, in New York City. So there's this really fascinating. Through Pace, there's this connection to blues and ragtime and certain kinds of musical production, but also this kind of Predecessor or what's or what's leading quickly to the Harlem Renaissance, uh, and so Black Swan is trying to sort of compete in this sort of initially these high culture sorts of ways. It wants to you know assert that the black performers are as good or better than any white performers in the sort of so called high arts, you know things like you know opera, classical music, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty clear early on that. That black audiences, I think, as well as white audiences, want a more, you know, they want to hear the music they were used to hearing, which is like, you know, the music from the local performance, the the, the, the party, the barn dance, that sort of thing. So more, you know, kind of middle brow to low brow sort of sorts of music. And eventually Black Swan has to sort of give into that. I mean, and and they go on to record incredible performers. I'm thinking here of Ethel Waters, who goes on to this great film career as well as uh, music career. Um, and so, uh, Black Swan, I think is a, I think it is important. This important moment. Uh, it's not the only label. Later on, there's uh, Black Patty Records, uh, which is uh, Mayo Williams, uh, the the sort of legendary uh, black. Uh, record man, A and R scout, who was working out of Chicago, both with Paramount Records in Wisconsin and Jeanette Records in Indiana, um, and so I do think these interve- interventions were meaningful, uh, but you know, short lived, unfortunately, in, in in many of the cases, not all of the cases, but uh, and then of course these records get mythologized by record collectors later. If you ever see a black swan record at a flea market, or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you should buy it right then. Uh, <laughs> um, if you'd like to buy a new car or uh, finance a new house, maybe. Uh, um, so they've become quite highly sought after recordings. So, and because these are shellac recordings, you know, in some cases, that record you might find in a flea market bin might be the only known copy of that record. So uh uh Black Swan recordings as well as some of these other African American label uh releases are hugely valuable uh in the present day which I think has some other things to say about the white mythologizing of these earlier African American blues performers <laughs> but that's a that's a much broader conversation so mm-hmm.
1: great yeah And, and so then in the next chapter, then you move on to old time music and, and then you sort of look at the ways in which that music, uh, sort of
0: connects to radio. Yeah. It's so fascinating, right. That, I mean, even in, even in the, the sort of racist and, uh, xenophobic 1920s, like the sort of response to all this, the sort of rise of modernity, right. Jazz in a lot of ways was associated eventually with this kind of modernizing. Um, uh, Old time music or later hillbilly and then later country is this odd corner of the 1920s to me. Uh, the radio scholar Michelle Helms talks about country music as being in the, or, or barn dance radio as being in the backwoods of modernity, which I just love. Um, I hope I'm quoting her correctly. I hope I have that right. But uh, this also points to most of the record companies being in the Northeast, because what's fascinating is old-time music is the last of the major genres that emerge in this period to be recorded. So after blues and after jazz, you know, we get old-time music or country music. I'd also like to point out that it's odd to me that at its inception, old-time music is defining itself by something that had already passed, right? Right. This notion that I just want to get back to the little old log cabin mm-hmm. you know, on the lane kind of thing. There's this nostalgia for something that had been lost. And I think you mm-hmm. can map that in, in rural white migration to the industrial north and in the Midwest. There's a lot of narratives of um, homesickness and nostalgia. You also see this in race records, particularly later race records, which is people question because, you know, how... How could African Americans of the 1920s be nostalgic for the South? But I think the answer, in part, to that is that the North wasn't all that better. Um, it's complicated, right? Um, uh, we have complicated relationships to mm-hmm. place and to mm-hmm. family, and I think a lot of that comes out there. But yeah, so I'm I'm interested in in how old time music becomes a category, and I, I here I need, again need to say that you know, the record business sort of artificially segregates this music. There are plenty of, of, of bands across the sort of racial spectrum, borrowing from other kinds of traditions. And these traditions are always already hybrid anyway. Right. So within jazz is, you know, there's, you get Caribbean and Creole and black New Orleans and Italian American and Eastern European kinds of influences like American music is all is, you know, hybrid music. But on the other hand, these, these racial formations, I think are really important. In a certain sense, they're arbitrary, but they're, in some cases, it can be, it can be life and death. Um, uh, So anyway, there were black fiddle, but fiddle bands, there were Black country singers, uh, they were white performers that black blues players assumed were black until they saw a photo of them or met them. So there's a lot of back and forth. But what's interesting, I think, about the the old-time music chapter is that here's this deeply nostalgic music, right? Uh, but it is the first genre, and maybe this, I think you have to say that this is... Connected to racism, institutional racism likely, is that this nostalgic cultural form is popularized, the first of these three genres to be most popularized through the radio, right? So it takes jazz a while. Jazz has to go from being hot to being sweet, and it has to be sort of uh, made acceptable for the American public before it gets to radio, and it becomes the pop music of the day. Country music's charting, you know, sort of from it's it's kind of origins on record to radio it's a lot faster so so old time music is the first really to emerge in some ways with radio and i here's uh, you know i discuss the sort of famous country recording sessions the bristol sessions and and these other sessions but we i also hear talk about radio the barn dance radio shows which were really more almost like sort of countryfied vaudeville kind of Shows that wasn't really the kind of deep country music you might hear on record, but shows like the National Barn Dance out of uh, Chicago WLS, Chicago WLS standing for World's Largest Store, uh, because Sears owned it, um, and then Nashville's uh, Grand Old Opry with on WSM, uh, uh, um, if I'm remembering that correctly, um, the Grand Old Opry show there, so. Yeah, country music benefits from from radio in ways that jazz doesn't early on, but will later. And race records doesn't really benefit from and doesn't really later on either in some ways. This is also when we start to see the emergence of film. Uh, and film becomes more of a thing in the late 20s. Uh, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. <laughs>
1: yeah I mean I was just going to say i mean the 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 second part of your book sort of brings you know your overall kind of goals for the book you know into focus uh because you then bring in in chapter four you know you look at the ways that sound recording yeah. radio and film converge in the second half of the twenties so yeah I'm wondering if you could just say more about how all of that comes together and how you're able to to really make that argument, that
0: yeah, I think sound recording um, I is, wanted to make sure. Oh, media. I should also mention with with radio that there's this fascinating kind of border radio work that happens with the Carter family and other people um, down on the Texas-Mexico border doing sound recordings. But yeah, starting with Chapter Four, on with the dance, and then Chapter Five about the consolidation and collapse of the record business, um, or collapse and consolidation rather. Um, I wanted to, I feel like if I just did the first half of the book, then I would have a recording industry book, but I didn't want to have just that. So I wanted to, to chart how as these genres emerge, more and more artists look for these broader popular possibilities. So by the late twenties and early thirties recording stars, I mean, they used to maybe perform and then appear on record but increasingly they want to be on radio. Uh, If they can, they want to be on film, at least a film short. Uh, And so you start, start to see these cross media stars, people like uh, the, the jazz band leader, Paul Whiteman, who gets called the king of jazz, which even he understood to be problematic. Uh, But you know he, or Bing Crosby, or Al Jolson, or later on Louis Armstrong. You know they understand that they they want to be on record, they want to be on stage, they want to be on film, they want to be on radio, uh, and that's increasingly the goal. As you know, in the late twenties, Victor becomes RCA Victor. In the early thirties, Columbia becomes well, Columbia gets passed around, owned by different radio companies, eventually becoming CBS. Uh, and so it's not just the record business anymore. By the end of the book, so. Um, I spent some time on Paul Whiteman and Bing Crosby. Uh, Whiteman is in a, a film called the King of jazz and he's got a radio show called the old gold radio hour. Um, universal pictures gets him out to LA and he's, they set up the band in this place and he's doing radio. He does this train tour along the way, getting, promoting his radio show and promoting the film that he's going to make. Um, Louis Armstrong travels to Europe for a tour uh, around this period. And he, on this passport, he lists his career as actor, which I think is really fascinating. You know, Louis Armstrong says, you know, Oh yeah, I'm an actor. Uh, And he's appearing. He's done some, he does some film shorts and he does some uh, performance kind of appearances on film. And then of course, you know, later on, you know, he's in, He's in a lot of different movies. He's in uh, uh, that movie High Society in the 50s with, I think it's Sinatra and Grace Kelly and some other people. So, you know, I just love these moments where you're sort of getting a glimpse of the cross-media future. Uh, But also, you know, some of these uh, more niche musicians like Jimmy Rogers, the country star, he is in a film short. Bessie Smith is in a film before her death. Uh, And it's a fairly long one. Um actually, made by uh, a filmmaker who had, had worked on an avant-garde film before that, uh, by Fernand Leger. So um, really fascinating coming together of these different forms. The, the background of all this is that sound media has gone from being an acoustic medium to being, being an electric medium, which brings radio, film and sound recording a lot closer together. Film suddenly realizes it needs a lot of sound and it turns to musicals and it turns to music, uh, music publishing, but also it's more and more interested in sound recordings. Radio is beginning to pivot from performance to sound recordings. Uh, There's a lot more interaction between them all. So to me, it's a fascinating period in which you start to see the the industries coming together now the record business is really nervous about this right because radio is like the streaming of that era right it's seeing it's you know it's sort of whistling past the graveyard uh that you know like oh well this radio thing (laughs) is sort of their attitude thomas edison says the radio fad won't last he says this in 1922 um they're nervous right But um, by the late 20s, they're figuring out ways and they're selling like combination phonograph radio kits and uh, labels that were reticent to have their artists on radio are starting to come around to it. But the reality is that by the height of the depression, would you rather buy a new record every week or would you like to buy a radio where you could stream the music to borrow contemporary, uh, the contemporary term, right? Uh, And so that's what happens, right? Radio really dominates by the late twenties and early thirties. The record business doesn't close down altogether, but it's clear that something has really changed, in no small way. So
1: great. Um, So is there anything else about the the book that hasn't come up? Like I guess so.
0: The first four chapters, I'm I'm really trying to sort of link these strands together in different sorts of ways. Uh and I think it's a little more rhetorical work than the last chapter. Is the last chapter I'm I'm trying to just map what happens industrially. It's like the closest to like a straight industry history as I get. Um, but it's really fascinating industry history, right? So, you know, why is it that we don't notice that Victor Records becomes RCA Victor and Columbia becomes CBS? You know, this is the this is you know, this is radio, and this is later television, right? And it starts with the phonograph industry, and we somehow lose that. But um, there's this period of economic collapse and consolidation that I find really fascinating. So of course, the stock market occurs. Victor had already been sold to RCA. Victor earlier on, supposedly, had sort of sniffed at uh, RCA when it came around. <laughs> looking to collaborate. And then RCA a couple years later buys Victor essentially. Um, Columbia has fallen kind of by the early thirties. It's a shadow of its former self. It's the oldest record company in existence, right? Later on, we know it for like all these, you know, Bob Dylan and all these sort of famous performers, but Columbia is teetering on the brink of closure for much of the late twenties and early thirties. And then Edison closes up shop altogether, which is symbolically so amazing to me. And it's not often talked about. So a a week or two after the stock market collapse, Edison says, I'm out of the phonograph business. I'm out of the record business, right? Edison, right? The name more associated with it than anyone else. So, and then you get this period where, you know, even in bad times, there are these innovators, right? People that are looking to, To uh, find a niche. And that goes on through the 30s, all these discount record labels and people trying to do things on the cheap. And uh, through the 30s, you know, Columbia is passed around different discount record companies and radio companies, you know, buy and sell Columbia, which is why there's so little paperwork on Columbia. I don't know if Sony has a bunch in its archives, but, you know, every time it got bought and sold, I, I assume the paper got thrown out, but, um, but, uh, at the low point for Columbia, I think it's 30, I'm not sure of the year, 33, maybe Columbia records advertises in talking machine world magazine, a home dry cleaning kit, right? So things had gotten so bad for Columbia, they're like, okay, you're not going to buy records. So, So here's a dry cleaning kit. And what it was, was a big tank you were supposed to buy, I guess. I don't know. Um and put this liquid in, like this sort of solution and your clothes and just like crank the tank back and forth. <laughs> and I saw this ad for years and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was some record collector had mocked it up or something, you know. I didn't think that it was real. And I was at the I was at the Library of Congress and I finally asked him, I said, Can you pull this issue of talk machine world for me? You know, I'm gonna look and see if the ad's actually in there, if it was a real thing. It was. It was a real thing. Um, So, and I should also mention just around 1934, there's this article by Dane York, you know, the sort of cultural writer of the era. And Dane York writes this thing about the rise and the fall of the phonograph. And it talks about, you know, the record business essentially being over, at least over in terms of whatever it, it had been, right? And there's these great subtitles, in the article, like the trademark dog's stubby tail, referring to Victor Records, you know, Nipper, uh, the, the pr- dog that the advertising folks used to use for them. Um, and so there's a sense that the record business was over, uh, at least in terms of whatever it had been. And what it was about to become was this subsidiary of radio. Um, and so why would radio want uh, record companies at this point? They wanted record companies, I think, for two reasons. They wanted them for the brand, because Victor was still a huge brand. Columbia was still a huge brand. But they also wanted the industrial works, right? So the Victor factory in Camden was one of the most sophisticated operations anywhere. And so RCA, wanting to up production quickly, saw in Victor a way to make that happen. Um, So... Uh, and there's just not been a lot of folks who have written on that era of in media conglomeration entertainment conglomeration like we tend to think of it as a i don't know when we start writing about it uh, in other media contexts, but it starts that early, and so I was hoping to try and get that on the map as well so um, I do write about the music in this book a little bit it's awful it's awfully hard to do all the industrial and kind of media and culture stuff I want to do. And also just talk about the songs, but there's this huge swath of music that comes out of this era that we've never fully mapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there are, you know, hobbyists and collectors out there that are trying desperately to track down this or that recording they'd read about, but have never, it's never been found. Uh, so, you know, decades of people knocking on doors saying, is there anything in your attic? Is there anything in your basement? Um, so I think that aspect of it is fascinating. I knew that I couldn't do the kind of project I wanted to do and also write about all this amazing music and all these amazing sound recordings, spoken word recordings, um, uh, uh, sermons, um, all kinds of things they were doing, um, really broad approach to sound recording indigenous tribes at the grand Canyon um. Uh. Just. Um. Uh, Latin American music along the the board, the Texas Mexico border. Um. Swedish folk songs in sweet in, uh, in 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 Minnesota. Mining songs in Pennsylvania. I mean, the breadth of it, I think, is hard to, for people to grasp. You know,
1: hmm.
0: which one thing that I one thing that gave me a little pause
1: mm-hmm.
0: is it focusing on jazz, blues, and country, I had to exclude this much broader swath of sound recording that I can only sort of gesture at. Uh, and that was maybe the hardest decision to make. And I was worried that I was reifying some categorical things that gave me <laughs> discomfort. Anyway, that's that's pretty much it.
1: Well, great. Um, well, Kyle, we've taken up a lot of your time uh, Well, I have no no idea about your teaching load, Um,
0: (laughs) but I will tell you, you could admit to whatever situation (laughs) you're in, but I I will tell you that (laughs) being a professor at a liberal arts school, it's, it's been wonderful. Uh, I went from a school of 50,000 students, roughly University of Texas to a school of about 3,500 here in Louisville. Uh, We teach a lot. So a lot of my research is slow to emerge. Um, I'm always working on it, percolating uh, on it, writing when I get an hour here or an hour there. But I, So I have years and years of side projects that I want to get to now um, uh, when I can. And uh, they generally fall into two categories right now. Um, one is about intersections between film and recorded sound culture or maybe just screens and recorded sound culture. And so here I'm thinking about things like, um, uh, so in the course of my work on this book, I found a lot a, a lot of amazing things that just didn't fit. Uh, and so I just I stumbled upon a short-lived record label called Talk-O-Photo, Talk-O-Photo. Uh, and it was uh, these sort of cardboard-like, Laminated discs with a picture of a movie star on one side and a, uh, a replicated autograph. And on the other side is a message from the silent film star. Uh, and so Gloria Swanson was on one, and just sort of some of the silent film stars of the day. These are fascinating to me because both in film and sound recording, a notion of a media celebrity is only emerging in the 1910s, right? And the celebrities appearing on these recordings don't really know how to address their fans because Mm -hmm. most cinema is still silent in 1920. I mean, there's experiments going on. I mean, you know, so-called silent, there's a piano player and all that. But so most people, unless they had seen the star on stage, would have never heard the voice of their favorite star. So I love this thing where fans could buy a sound recording and take their love of some film star from the public cinematic space to this uh, private domestic space and listen to Gloria Swanson talking to you in your home kind of thing, right? And so that must have been, I think, amazing. It was a short-lived thing. I'm fascinated in that. So the kind of parasocial relationship between fans and stars. Um, So, uh, but so that's kind of the start of a project on connections Mm. between Mm -hmm. film and or screen media and recorded sound culture. Um, I'm also looking at these sound recordings from the 1950s and early 60s, I think, called Co-Star, where it's an actor uh, and the actor is reading, uh, is acting, in the sense, you're reading from a script and, and the record comes with a script included and then you're supposed to act with the star. Uh, and when I was at Bowling Green State University doing research last summer, I found a number mm. of these records. And uh, so you you know, a person acting with Cesar Romero or, you know, whoever the actor was. And there, I think I find those really fascinating too. Um, uh, I'm interested in the ways in which, you know, usually when we think about film sound and narrative, we're looking at, you know, some score or some sound design from a given film, but I'm interested in how actual material phonograph records or, uh, you know, players could also have an effect on the narrative or the affect of a given film. There's this Cary Grant, um, Irene Dunn film called Penny Serenade. And the whole thing is structured around the Irene Dunn character, remembering her marriage through phonograph records. And so every scene is based on a a memory she's getting from listening to a record. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, the the most recent thing that I might want to write about is from the 1980s, there was a computer company in england that made these rudimentary music videos to play on your computer so you'd buy let's say Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks you'd buy Pete Shelley's album XL1 and take it home and there would be a recording that just sounds like an instrumental recording with some odd sounds in it you'd record that put it on a cassette tape put that cassette tape in this cassette based computer Of the era. And it would, through that computer and that audio recording, it would prompt these rudimentary music videos. And you can see some of these on YouTube. Um, And so I don't know if I'm going to sort of expand it to sort of film, TV, computer screens, or if it's just going to be film-based. But this screen and sound interplay, um, tracking things that we haven't tracked before, that's like one pile of research. The other pile of research is a broadly speaking um on sound recording well, mm. I guess it's on sound citizenship, so sound recordings either spoken word or musical, and how it relates to uh issues surrounding citizenship. so I'm thinking about the um uh, Spanish language labels along the the mm. texas Mexico border, and sort of the way in which they assert their uh uh mexican Americanness through the recordings. I'm also thinking about the work of Voice of America, the radio uh, uh, network, uh, and and what it has to say about citizenship. And then also, when I was doing research on Jeanette Records, I discovered a disturbing corner of its history, uh, and that is, it was Jeanette was one of the labels, not the only one, that would record speeches and music for the local Ku Klux Klan. And so, in the 1920s, the Klan are making recordings, and they're using media. They're they're doing they're making piano rolls, like for player pianos. They're making records, and they're they're doing like you know, there's booklets, song booklets, magazines. Uh, they're using media to try and uh, uh, get recruits, and they're trying to repackage themselves as this sort of almost like a political party. They're trying to to mainstream. They're trying to. Um, uh, uh, wrap themselves in, in the American flag and in, uh, patriotism and in, um, defense of sort of traditional Americans, so-called traditional Americans way, way of life. And so I'd like to write about those plan recordings. Um, uh, I'll tell you that, um, I discovered, them. Um, two more archival things and then I'll, I'll be quiet, but, um, the taco photo recordings that I mentioned earlier, Um, no archive or library in the United States or uh, as far as I know, anywhere in the world has any of those silent film stars on record in the talk of photo records. They are only in the hands of collectors and archivists or not archivists, just collectors. Hmm. I discovered a a mega collector near Houston who had 12, all 12 recordings of all 12 of the known releases from talk of photo And he shared them with me digitally and I've never shared them with anyone else because if I do, he will immediately know it was me. (laughs) And uh, so I want to be very careful in that regard. And then with the Ku Klux Klan (laughs) records, I discovered a jazz collector, an old time, sort of an old, you know, hot jazz collector from near Indianapolis who was also on the side buying these Klan recordings, not because he appreciated them in any way, but because he felt like they were historically important. And so he mentioned something on a listserv about them and I contacted him. And then we went through several months where he was trying to feel me out. Like, I think at some level he was concerned that maybe somehow I was a white supremacist. Um <laughs> And so I was, so he was like, Oh God, I don't want these records. I mean, essentially was like, I don't want I don't want these records to get back in circulation. Essentially was what he was saying. Now they're nothing like contemporary, you know, vitriolic, um, uh, racist music. Uh, this is much more subtle, uh, much more, again, sort of it sounds like a Donald Trump speech, uh, or a Pat Buchanan speech. It's all the code words are there. But they're looking for mainstream acceptance. So there's these weird joke records that mm-hmm. are highly offensive, but they're playing, trying to play it for a laugh, where they do the old rugged cross and they turn it into the bright, fiery cross, or they do a recorded speech. But they'll also do these jokey records. There's a song called, um, and they are in no way funny, um, uh, but they do this song called uh, Daddy Swipe My Last Clean Sheet and Join the Ku Klux Klan, right? And it's this jazzy rag number, which makes me want to scream because I want to go back in time and say, like, okay, so do you know the people that wrote this music were Eastern European Jews and African American? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they have no. They, clearly, there were not a lot of musicologists involved in the 1920s Ku Klux Klan, but um, but I'm I'm interested in in digging through some of that material uh and um and my own complicated history with it because you know I'm from Indiana right and the 1920s northern clan was based there so um uh it's it's not a lot of fun always doing that research but it's i think really crucial to do um and so there's all these side histories like the 1920s clan was famously anti black anti jewish anti immigrant anti catholic and so the anti-Catholicism thing was particularly big here in the Midwest. There were march, clan marches down Pennsylvania Avenue in, New- in Washington, D.C., but also uh, out in front of the U- University of Dayton, which is a Catholic institution. And the northern clan, based out of Indiana, wanted to buy Valparaiso University mm-hmm. near Chicago in Indiana, a Lutheran school. And the Lutheran, to their credit, the school said they'd rather go out of business. Um, but the clan's follow-up was to... Uh, they hated that Notre Dame was in Indiana. So they did this huge march out in front of the Notre Dame campus. And the it was then an all-male school. The, the undergraduates of uh, Notre Dame poured out into the street and, and beat them back. Essentially, there was a street scuffle and uh, the students won, essentially. And you can find this in the South Bend Press and that sort of thing. So I want to map that kinds of stuff. So, so questions around citizenship uh, and sound media, and then also questions around f- screen, screen cultures and sound cultures. And so we'll see. Right now, I'm just going to try to write some journal articles <laughs> and get, get started again, right? You know, after all this. I mean, you know what that's like, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of after a book is published, like that feeling like, where do you start? You know, wh- where do I go now? Like, <laughs> I don't want to lose this writing rhythm, you know, that I've that I've developed. What do I do now? That's a little bit of the feeling right now. So,
1: yes, These sound like great projects, really interesting research.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you
0: for being on the show today. It's been great. Thank I you. I
1: really enjoyed talking to you and uh, take care.